Today's reading is from the book of Zephaniah, page 945 in the Church Bibles. So that's Zephaniah, chapter 2, verse 4. Gaza will be abandoned and Eshkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. Woe to you who live by the sea, you Carathite people. The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. He says, I will destroy you and none will be left. The land by the sea will become pastures, having wells for shepherds and sheepfolds for flocks. That land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. They will, there they will find pasture. In the evening they will lie down in the house of Eshkelon. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. I have heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Ammonites who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. This is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth. Distant nations will bow down to him, all of them in their own lands. You Cushites too will be slain by my sword. He will stretch out his hands, hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there, creatures of every kind. The desert owl and the screech owl will roost in her columns. Their hooting will echo through the windows. Rubble will fill the doorways. The beams of cedar will be exposed. This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one and there is none besides me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials with her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the Lord. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice, and every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. I have destroyed nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted, with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste. They are deserted and empty. Of Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify, I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Uh, my name is Madhush. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Trinity Church. It's great to have you all here. Uh, please, will you keep your Bibles open at Zephaniah chapter 2? We're going to work our way through that this afternoon. 
Uh, let's ask God to change us as we listen to him. Father, it's amazing that your words give life. May they cut to our hearts today, exposing us so that we see our need and run to you. May your words take root in us, changing us from the inside out, so we walk in the new life of your spirit. Amen. How do you feel when bad people get away with bad things? It's probably not that hard to think of a miscarriage of justice. Maybe you have in mind something that's quite personal to you. Or maybe it's something you know that has deeply hurt someone else. Or perhaps it's on a grand scale. Whatever it is, probably like me, it makes you angry. Because we have a desire for justice. Let me just share two stories. Robert Richards was wealthy and well-connected. In 2009, he was found guilty of raping his three-year-old daughter. He was given an eight-year prison sentence, but instead of serving it, the judge considered that he wouldn't fare well in prison, and so his sentence was suspended. Just yesterday, another six people were killed as a boat carrying migrants sank in the channel off the French coast. Who's responsible? The desperate migrants? Their home governments? People smugglers? Our immigration policy? Is anyone going to be held accountable for that? See, everything in me shouts when I, when I hear stories like this, that's not fair. How much more when the people harmed are the ones who are dearest to us? See, the God who made us has given us a deep longing for justice, a longing that our experience in this world leaves largely unmet. But we do have a God who does satisfy that desire. We heard last week from Zephaniah 1 the announcement that the day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The God of the Bible takes sin seriously. He sees human wickedness and he does something about it. He will hold the guilty to account. From the passage we read today, chapter 3, verse 5, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. Power, wealth, corruption, all of those things may protect the wicked for a little while. But when the Lord comes, there is no escaping his justice. Now, our passage today goes even further than that. God cares about every sin committed, especially against the weak and vulnerable. But the greatest injustice 
is the rejection of God himself. You see, if I punch you in the face, I'd be charged with assault. But if I punched the king in the face, I'd be charged with treason. The severity of the crime matches the one that it's committed against. Our sin against each other is horrific, but our sin against God rejecting his good and gracious rule is even worse. And in these chapters, we see how God's justice is particularly directed against those who reject him and show it by opposing his people. A people and nations who shake their fist in God's face to persecute his people. People like Bay in North Korea. Those persecutors will be held to account. And so from our text, Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 4, I want you to first observe how God's justice is all-encompassing. God is going to come like a mighty warrior against the nations who reject him and who oppose his people. In the West, his judgment falls against the Philistine cities along the Mediterranean coast. I pick it up in verse 4. Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. These are great Philistine cities. At the end of verse 5, God says, I will destroy you and none will be left. These are the ancient enemies of God's people. And God says he will come and lay waste their mighty cities. Now here's the reason in verse 5 for God's judgment. The word of the Lord is against you. In the light of God's truth, they stand condemned. Their sin is exposed. Their false worship and immoral practices. The injustice in their society. What they haven't realized is that their opposition to God's people is the same as opposing God himself. God cares for his people. He won't let the Philistines go unpunished. And so he says... He will destroy them so that his people can flourish. In the east, God's judgment falls against Moab and Ammon. They, these two were enemies of God's people, thorns in Israel's side. You can pick it up in verse 8. This is the reason for their judgment. God says, I have heard the insults of Moab, the taunts of the Ammonites those who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, the Lord Almighty will judge them. Verse 10, this is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. They are self-assured, confident in their own wisdom and ability, sure that their gods, which are no gods at all, will protect them. But their wickedness, their persecution of God's people rises up into his presence. Now you may remember what happened to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. They're pretty famous. 
because of their horrific wickedness, their sexual depravity, blood-soaked streets, God rained fire on them, wiping them out. Here we're told that Moab and Ammon face the same fate. The Lord has sworn, and so they will be destroyed. The ground, the, the land of those nations will be made desolate, a wasteland. It's like one of those uh, dystopian movies where these once great cities are torn down as society breaks apart. They become these ghost towns, wastelands that remind you of their once glory. And yet they are completely without inhabitant. No one lives in them anymore. They are just desolate wastelands. That's what's pictured here in all of these judgments. God has sworn and he will act. In the south, God's judgment falls against Cush, what's today part of East and North Africa. It's there in verse 12. God says, you too will be slain by my sword. The domain of the covenant God of Israel extends to the ends of the earth. This is not some small regional God. There is no square foot of creation that lies outside of his sovereign rule. There is no nation, no empire, no king which does not fall under his power. He is the judge. And people from everywhere will be measured by his scales. And then finally, in the north, we have the superpower, Assyria, and its capital city, Nineveh. Verse 13, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate as the dry and as dry as the desert. See, this is the great empire that defeated and took the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. This is the nation that marched right up to the gates of Jerusalem and laid siege to it 60 years earlier when Hezekiah was the king. And you see how her pride is emphasized in verse 15. This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one. And there is none besides me. While she's safe no more, the mighty warrior will march against her. In Isaiah chapter 10, the pride of Assyria is fleshed out. There, Assyria says, it's by the strength of my hand that I've conquered all these nations. It's by my wisdom, for I have understanding. Shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images just like I dealt with Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and hers. She's so proud, so self-confident. The answer? No, Assyria, you won't. You were merely a tool in the hands of a sovereign God. He sees your sin, your brutality. He knows your arrogance, and he will come to deliver justice. What becomes of that great nation, that great empire? Well, we're told that rubble will fall doorways. Beams of cedar will be exposed as buildings come tumbling down. 
she will become a ruin, a lair for wild beasts. There's nothing, I think, quite like a disaster to disabuse us of our arrogance, to remove that illusion that we have somehow earned a measure of security and privilege through our own initiative and hard work. So behind me, there's a, there's a picture of Lahaina, Hawaii, from a month ago, and then earlier this week, just a few days ago. The fire that raged through that town did not discriminate. No one was spared. The illusion of a safe island paradise melted away in moments. What about our city? The great city of London. The pillar of the great British Empire on which the sun never set until it did. The city that flourishes even when the empire fell by maintaining a firm grip on the world's financial transactions. Did you know that it even topped the New York Times list of 52 places to go in 2023? What a great city! What a proud city. Can you picture it? on the day of the Lord, when the mighty warrior comes to deliver justice? Big Ben keeling over, a tower bridge underwater, Buckingham Palace, a pile of rubble, the British Museum with all of its stolen treasures from all over the world in flames. Maybe for you it's Singapore, or Sydney, or Tbilisi. God in his holy justice is coming against them all. Impressive cities, great empires that seem invincible today will fall before him. Friends, this is written here to challenge the attitude of our hearts. Are we tempted to think that we have made it to where we are because we earned it? That it's by our own wisdom and strength that we deserve it? Then we are as proud as the nations. Or are we tempted to think that it doesn't really matter how we live? That sin isn't such a big deal, as long as we offset it with some spirituality. Then we're in danger. And this should also make us consider the location of our hope. Where is it? Where is your hope? Is it divided? Is it partly in the promises of God's kingdom? but largely in the lives that we are building in this city? I'm sorry to break it to you. Actually, I'm not that sorry. It's not such a terrible thing. But your front door has a condemned notice nailed into it. It's going to be wrecked. It's just a matter of time. When the whole city comes down, your house is coming down with it. Wherever you're planning to move, 
How foolish to be spending so much of our time and energy and money trying to decorate it. Trying to scrounge up enough money for that deposit to buy that place. It's just going to be wrecked. It's just going to be torn down. I mean, sure, you, you've got to keep it livable. We need rain shelters while we wait. But don't be a fool. Don't throw everything into it. We should be pouring all of our resources into the church of God, into his people. That's what he cares about. That's what matters to him. Let me show you that from our passage. And let me show you that God judges the nations for the benefit of his people. First, I want you to remember from last week who will be safe on the day of the Lord. It's there in chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. It is the humble who seek the Lord who will be sheltered. It's those who recognize their need and run to Jesus whose sin is forgiven. They are counted righteous. They are the ones who are strengthened to obey the Lord. Now take a look at chapter 2, verse 7. God says he's going to judge the Philistines. He's going to flatten their great cities. Then, he says, that land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. It will turn into pastures for their flocks. They will build houses and live in them. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. See where God's heart is? Again, at the end of verse 9. The land of the Moabites and Ammonites will become this great wasteland. Then the remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. The remnant here are the humble who seek the Lord. The Lord acts for their good. Friends, the world in its pride teaches us to grab whatever we can get our hands on and then hold as tightly as we can onto it. God says it's the humble who will inherit it all in the end. So much for all your hard work. Well, if you're one of the humble, if you're among God's people, great. This is amazing news. But God's not done. Uh, the list doesn't end in chapter 2, verse 15. It carries on into chapter 3, verse 1. We, we've seen God's justice fall in the west and in the east, in the south and in the north. Where will he go next? Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in her Lord. She does not draw near to her God. It's as if the intensity of the condemnation is ramping up. 
these people seem even worse than the nations. The shock is that they are God's own people. In verse 5, God references that he lives there. He lives within her in the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 7 explicitly names it. This is Jerusalem. Can you believe that Jerusalem is just like the nations? She's even worse. God has revealed himself to her, to its citizens. He has given them his law. He has given them priests and prophets and kings. What would you expect? People who look different, who live different. But what's the reality? Wickedness, corruption, injustice hold sway. And so God says he will not overlook their sin. Verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. He's not a human judge who shows partiality. He can't be bought. He's not corrupt. Now, it's one thing to be there on the sidelines cheering when you see the wicked get what's coming to them, when you see justice done. Now, that's a right response. We should praise God when his justice falls and the wicked are held to account. But this is doing a different thing. It's making us look in the mirror of God's word. And as we look at it, we are to realize, hang on, I'm just the same. I fall short. I too deserve God's judgment. It's to show us that we are not safe by association. Living in Jerusalem doesn't keep you safe. Hanging out with Christians, going to church, even if you pull it off over an entire lifetime, does not keep you safe. It is the humble who seek the Lord who will be sheltered on that day. This is how the Apostle John expresses it. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he, the resurrected Lord Jesus, is faithful and just. And he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Reject God and sin takes hold. It deceives us into thinking that we're safe. And so we don't turn in repentance. We see God's justice coming. We see it all around us and we ignore it. We harden our hearts. You can see it in Jerusalem. At the end of verse 5, the unrighteous know no shame. They just carry on sinning. You can see it again at the end of verse 7. Those who are faithless continue to act corruptly. But those of us who run to Jesus will find safety. As John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us. John goes on. 
I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Here's the righteous one living in his holy city. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And that is where the real surprise comes in this passage today. We saw how God judges the nations for the benefit of his people. And then we realize that he even judges the wicked among his own people. But believe it or not, his mercy is limitless. It extends all the way out to the nations. Uh, turn back with me a page to chapter 2, verse 11. And look at it. See how God acts in his judgment? He destroys all the false gods of the earth. And yet, he gathers people from distant nations to bow down to him. That's remarkable. He acts for all people everywhere who are humble, who realize their need and therefore run to him. As John says, the righteous judge offers himself as a sacrifice not just for the people of Judah, not just for the citizens of Jerusalem, but for the sins of all people who recognize their need. Isn't that remarkable? What a hope we have. And so as we see God's judgment fall, the, the challenge it leaves us with is this. Are you going to place your hope in the lives that you are building in this city? Or are you going to place your hope in the righteous judge who shows mercy to the nations? God has given us a desire for justice. It's largely unmet in this world, but he delivers it either in Jesus' sacrifice for us as he bears God's justice or when we face that justice ourselves on that final day of the Lord. Here's how the section ends. Verse 6 is a recap. God will judge the nations. In verse 7, even Jerusalem will be judged. God's justice is coming, so what should we do? Well, the answer is in verse 8. We must wait. You who are humble, who seek the Lord, wait. Wait patiently for God's justice. I find that hard. We want something to give. We want to see change right now. Waiting for stuff to load feels intolerable. We're impatient. God says, wait. Yes, we must pursue biblical justice in society even now. The rest of scripture pushes us in that direction. But the point here is that God is the one who will finally deliver that justice. He is the one who will hold all the wicked to account. He is the one who will hold the persecutors of his people to account. He will bring justice. We can trust him. We can depend on him. 
And that means we can live our lives with confidence. We can live our lives with patient hope rather than despair. When you read all of those headlines, when you avoid the news so that you don't have to read those headlines, we don't read it and lose heart. We read it and our hope rises in us because we know who is judge and we know that he is coming. This is how it will all end. On that day, the day of the Lord's justice, we will be gathered with the people of God and we will be singing praises to him. In the words of Revelation 15, we will sing, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. What a hope. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for that day.